welcome to Coco Pods podcast. My name is Dr. Bola Sogade. I'm the host of this podcast. And this is a public education podcast in which we talk about women's health and especially minority women's health with an eye to maternity health. We look at the problems and how we can mitigate the problems and find solutions. Today, we're recording live from the United States Institute of Peace. And I am fortunate to have with me Dr. Wana Hutchinson Colas, MD, MBA. Dr. Hutchinson, good morning and welcome to Cocoa Pods podcast. Good morning and thank you for inviting me. This is a fabulous opportunity. Thank you. So, you know, before we talk about, uh, before we talk further, you know, I just want you to talk about your you know, career path, you know, for the younger you. And, you know, for our listeners out there, in this podcast today, you know, I'm a minimally invasive robotic gynecologic surgeon, but somebody gave me that first scalpel. And this is the person we're talking today with today. Dr. Dr. Wana Hutchinson taught me how to do my first surgery. So Dr. Hutchinson, if you were going to just you know, talk to a younger you or encourage, we have medical students working with us. We have uh, midwife students and also physician assistant students. And they're just curious about your career path. And if we're going to advise a younger uh, MD or resident that is thinking about a similar career path, uh, what would you tell them? Hmm. Find yourself a Dr. Bola. Uh, <laughs> uh, first, uh, it's really a hard one to start off with because you have to get the idea from somewhere. And this is, you have to get, the, if you weren't exposed to it, it's difficult. But once you have the idea and just a glimpse, find people, find mentors, and there are many around who will take you under their wings because we love what we do. I wouldn't do anything else. I was fortunate to have been born in the right family, to have gotten the support I needed and had the, the ability to look around and analyze things and shift as I needed to. So I didn't have a straight path, but I learned how to shift and modify and identify uh, what I needed to get to where I needed. So um, when I met Dr. Bola, she was uh, an intern. I was a fourth year chief resident and I identified myself as loving OB, but I really wanted to be a pelvic surgeon. And so I found my way to fellowship training and there I, I left training and went into practice. The space I'm in now, I feel a, a burden isn't the right thing, but a passion to really um, advocate for women and mentor. I mentor widely and invite students to talk to me. I, I'll share my path easily and willingly because it's different for everyone. But if you don't know someone and you can't see that light where you need to go, it's harder to find that path. And having found it the hard way, I would not like everyone to have to do so. So if you think you want to do medicine, find any doctor you want to talk to and get varied opinions. 
because some are jaded. You get varied opinions and then we'll support you. Anyone will support you. It's very easy for people to support those who have a goal. So make your goal, find your passion. And it, it sounds easy and cliche, but it's not. It's very easy to have people help you when you are clear in your direction and your goals. So if you could do one thing, sit down and decide what your goals are or your direction you want to have, the direction you want to have, write it down. There's something about that brain-hand connection. Write it down. And then you say, I must talk with this person. I must clarify this. This is not very clear. So let me find ways of clarifying this with someone who knows or who ought to know. Okay. And there, there are lots of ways to help you. Just don't wait until the last minute. Also, write down your goal, create that roadmap, dream and dream big. And then that will help you because you go back and refer to your notes and that will help to guide you. I promise you, if I could put it simply in this talk, that's a, she's asking me to, to know, summarize in a nutshell, you know, a lifetime, but I'm, I'm happy to do so. And I hope the advice is helpful. Be very clear in your direction. Dr. Bola has, um, has been very clear and purposeful and I admire her and on her success and achievement. And um, I'm, I'm humbled when she says I gave her her scample. I enjoy minimally invasive surgery myself. I, I do some of the most difficult pelvic floor reconstruction, all minimal, minimally invasive. So technology has changed and we've embraced the technology because it's better for our patients. I mean, Dr. Hutchinson, thank you for that. I remember being your uh, intern. Um, you held us to a very high standard, but we had no doubt about your intentions. We, we didn't think there was any meanness. We didn't think it was such you know, a, a loving environment that I pray that, you know, some of the med students working with me, some of the residents that you find a mentor that holds you to a high standard so you can be the best surgeon that you can be. And yet you have no doubt that this person is doing it out of just they love what they do. They don't mean to harm you. You just want to make sure that when you are out there with a scalpel by yourself, you really know what to do. So thank you so much for that, Dr. Hutchinson. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go to, um, you know, just, you know, as a pelvic surgeon, like you said, you perform advanced procedure that specifically offer to help permanently treat things like overactive bladder, urinary incontinence, and other such conditions. So, you know, first of all, what is a bladder pacemaker? I just, um, you know, wonder about that. I want to get that out of the way before we go on. <laughs> so um, for certain diagnoses related to urinary incontinence, but um, persistent urgency frequency, uh, there is, it's, it's really a, a nerve stimulator. Think about a pacemaker for the heart. It's a, a, a device that generates a pulse and the pacer is a wire, something very tiny that's placed at a certain 
place. Well, the similar thing happens for the bladder. The, the nerves to the bladder are in a certain location in the pelvis of the sacrum, and the pacemaker is placed. We hide the pacemaker in fat, like in the buttocks. However, the lead that carries the pulse is put inside through the bone in, and touches the nerve, the area where the impulse can be delivered. And so that's the pacemaker. Uh, it provides good therapy for the right persons at the right time. And so it's advanced therapy and uh the individual must have gone through first and second line therapies to be qualified for the third line therapies. And of course, they're quite expensive, FDA approved, and works well when, it, when placed for the right indication. So now, like you said, you know, there's a first line therapy. So once all the symptoms are put together, before we even treat, we do some formal investigations to see what is really going on. And so there are some diagnostic testing that we do before we even begin management. Some of the diagnostic testing include biofeedback, imaging tests, urine tests, and urodynamics. Can you just explain to us in layman's terms, you know, what some of the tests that you do before you proceed to management of these patients? Okay. The first test I do is a urine analysis. Every patient who comes to my office with urinary symptoms gets a urine analysis because it gives me clues into what the problem is. A simple infection, treating a simple infection will be a start of treating that person. Certain clues such as a large uh, amount of glucose in the urine tells me, hold up, this person is an undiagnosed diabetic. And diabetes must be treated. By the way, if I didn't say that before, diabetics have often have urinary symptoms. And one of the first clues is uncontrolled glucose um, levels. So I would be able to say, you need to see your primary care doctor and have a workup for diabetes, maybe treatment, and that will be helpful to you. So the urine analysis is a must one test. The next test is a residual urine. I alluded to that before because if someone is not able to properly empty the bladder, then they're going to have those symptoms of frequency and even urgency. And it could be um, so a large volume left in the bladder after urination is a problem. And we should be looking for a neurologic problem. We have, as our patients get older, they have spinal disease, spinal stenosis, and the ugly multiple sclerosis, which is affects the entire body. But sometimes the bladder is the first clue that this is going on. So those are some quick tests that can guide me to overall help my patients because I can refer them back to a, their primary care with, a, with some information that can specifically guide their diagnosis and treatment. So that's a start. Once all of that is done, and if they're within normal, I send my patient off with um, recommendations for initial therapy, which is behavioral changes, lifestyle modification, and a diary to try and show me what happens in your own environment. So this is a urinary diary in which they record, 
you know, when they go to pee, how much they pee, if they and what they're drinking and how much they're drinking. Drinking, okay. Right. And if, if they wake up at night to pee, how many and times? How many times? Exactly. Okay. okay. So that gives me information about you surrounding urination in your environment. Mm -hmm. And then um, if my patient comes in with symptoms related to both, there are many times of types of incontinence, by the way, related to stress incontinence, leakage with coughing, laughing, jumping, lifting, that stress incontinence, as well as leakage with urgency, the gotta go, where you have the desire to urinate and on the way to the bathroom before even pulling your pants down, you release, that's urgency incontinence. Individuals with symptoms of both, is it's more complex. And those individuals are recommended to have urodynamic testing. And I'll talk about urodynamic testing in a minute, but that's where we really need that test because it can tell me exactly what's happening now that I'm watching you filled with fluid and see the outcome. So I'll talk about that briefly in a minute. If an individual has blood, comes in with symptoms of having blood in the urine and they're sure it's from the urine, but my exam will tell me that person needs to have what we call cystoscopy. Cystoscopy is a direct exam of the inside of the bladder. So I would place a, a, a small scope, a small telescope on a camera and put it in the bladder with water and look at the lining of the bladder. I like to do that in the office, though I can do that in the operating room because in the office, my patients get to be engaged and see what the inside of their bladders look like. Now I do that because you wanna make sure there's no tumor growing in the bladder. And that's one of the things we worry about, early diagnosis of bladder cancer, no foreign body. If the person has had previous operations, someone could accidentally have left a stitch in the bladder or any previous treatment for incontinence requires an early look to make sure there's not a problem there. The urodynamics is a functional test. The individual comes in, I have a special chair and we ask the person to come with a full bladder. So you urinate in that chair, but the chair has a, a device at the bottom that collects the urine and I can tell how you're eliminating, if the flow is right, the amount that comes out, how much pressure is, is used to, to urinate. And then I insert a catheter to tell me what your bladder pressure is and the pressure in the urethra as I'm filling your bladder. And you are telling me what you're feeling. How, I have urgency and or I really want to go now. I can't hold it. It tells me a lot about how much the bladder can store, what is, what is really causing your leakage. Is it a bladder contraction that shouldn't happen at that particular time? Or is it really when you cough, sneeze, I have you cough and you leak? So it's a functional test. It gives a lot of information, very useful for those with neurologic symptoms, but those with even just symptoms of urgency and stress leakage. I would not operate on anyone with both symptoms for a procedure without doing this test because I want to make sure I'm offering the right solution for the problem. And it also gives me 
the ability to inform my patients ahead of time and counsel them as to what's going to get better with the procedure and what's not going to get better. Well, so how, how about the imaging um, tests, you know? There are few imaging tests required. Uh, if after cystoscopy, the bladder looks normal and there's still recurrent urinary tract infection, I have that index of suspicion that, well, the urine comes from the kidneys, so I need to look at the kidneys. And so a CAT scan with or without contrast, without contrast initially, is typically easier to, to request and have done. And it gives you a picture of the kidneys as well, because if you find stones, you can tell your patient, well, kidney stones, you have a problem, a bigger problem, really. It will cause you to have recurrent urinary tract infection, but maybe you should see an upper tract doctor like a urologist to decide whether the stones need to be removed or not. Of course, rarely we see kidney tumors in my space, but stones are pretty common. And so oftentimes that's the image I would recommend. If there is a complicated incontinence or leakage problem, and I suspect a fistula, a connection between the bladder and the vagina or other areas and the vagina, then imaging is definitely recommended um, at that time uh, as well. Now, now that you mentioned fistula, I just want to pivot just briefly, you <laughs> know, um, in developing countries, um, because we do have audiences in developing countries. I'm from Nigeria originally, and my medical school is in Nigeria. Women that have been in labor for a long time and they don't have access to a cesarean section to deliver the baby. This is a very common occurrence. It can be very common in developing country. Um, and because of the prolonged labor, they actually develop a fistula, you know, because of situations like this. And then the tragedy of this is that now they're leaking urine, they have a smell, and they're, they're spouses or their husbands don't want them anymore. They, they want a divorce. They want a separation from a problem that really was not their fault. Can you just talk a little bit to this condition? We don't see it uh, as much as we see it in developing countries. Correct. So developing countries, um, for many social reasons, it's more common. As, as uh, pointed out, uh, remote areas for delivery, not having access to a provider, a midwife or anyone, someone to help. But one of the problems in developing countries is that girls are, um, conceive earlier. They get married earlier in, in a time when their bodies aren't well developed. And so now they have a baby and have to birth a baby. The pelvis hasn't expanded, you know, and those that's just a setup for that um, obstructive labor and uh, having to go for Because if the pelvis is developed this, and, you know, and um, the babe, the average size baby, you can deliver anywhere with very little help. Let's put it that way. So it's usually the setup is that of a, a poorly developed pelvis for natural reasons. And uh, there's obstructed labor. And with the obstructed labor, the head sits 
right there by the between the bladder and the vagina for a long time. And that area is easily devascularized. Let me put it in, in simple language <laughs> that the blood supply is compressed. And so there's no blood supply to go there and keep the tissue viable and healthy. So the longer the head sits there and compress the blood supply, the tissue now just dies. And so there's this connection between, there's an opening once the tissue dies, it sloughs off, falls off, and there's a connection left between the bladder and the vagina. And depending on how long, it can be a large defect. So there can be just no urine stored in the bladder. It just comes right out. It is, it's a huge social problem as described and, and a really sad one. In the United States, however, and in developed countries, fistulas still occur. They're usually iatrogenic, meaning caused by something we do, something we do as surgeons or by few medical conditions that it's, um, that's the cause. Uh, either surgery or even radiation therapy, again, some, because of cancer in that area, you can have fistulas. So most of the fistulas we see in our country is caused by not necessarily uh, childbirth, but from surgery, as well as from treatment for cancer. Thank you. And, and, you know, we live in rural Forsyth, Georgia. A lot of women in our surrounding counties, they do have problems of access to obstetric care. Um, a lot of counties in rural Georgia do not have any obstetric health provider. No midwife, no family physician that performs obstetrics, no obstetrician. So this is, even though we talked about developing country, but this can even be replicated in rural America. So I'm glad you spoke to that. Now to pivot back, you know, now, you know, like anything else in medicine, we would try oral medications as indicated before any surgical intervention. Can you tell us the types of medications that can be tried uh, uh, for instance, with incontinence, and how would you monitor a woman's response and side effects to these medications? Because we want to try this first before we get more invasive with surgery. Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> I'm going to start off again by saying the first thing I'm going to try right. is behavioral modifications and lifestyle changes. Okay. Uh, early in, in my recommendation is pelvic floor re-education. In my practice, I have a list that I accumulate in the environment, the area surrounding my practice, because I have a newfound, a long-term found relationship and respect for physical therapists. They have expertise in metering treatment to that specific area. And it's easy to send, tell a woman do Kegels, but it's not that easy to do. And I test all my patients and take them through an exercise with every initial exam to know where they are in that process and can they do it on their own. Many times they cannot. And this is why I said, learn early, teach them early, because many times they cannot. So this is the next, this is part of the first line therapy also, pelvic floor muscle re-education. 
My listeners, I cannot tell you how often and how satisfying it is when a woman goes for pelvic floor therapy and her symptoms are improved. She said, I don't need anything else, really. So as we talk about medication, I have to bring that in because what I know as a specialist in this field is that when you add a medication to pelvic floor therapy, you have better success. The medication works better. Many people want the quick fix and just want the medication, but as alluded to, the medications, all medications have side effects. So I wanna step back and say, try physical therapy first. Add a medication to physical therapy if needed and you're gonna have a win-win situation because the pelvic floor is yours forever. It lives with you and it controls many other functions besides the bladder. Okay, uh, it helps you with sexual functions. Let me just go there, seeing that I was skirting around it. Sexual function and bowel evacuation. So you get a lot of bang for that buck going for physical therapy. And if the individual cannot identify and isolate the levator muscles, then here is an opportunity to refer for physical therapy. Now, I know in rural areas, we're not going to have therapists, but in metropolitan areas, physical therapist groups and physical therapists on a whole have identified that here is a niche that they can capture. And so I'm fortunate to be in the Northeast where I have a lot of physical therapists and they're all women because this is quite private the ones who do pelvic floor, you have physical therapists who do all body parts, but my pelvic floor therapist can meet a private pelvic therapy with localized contact. They do examine the patient and they meet her therapy and insurance will cover stimulation for you to buy the probe that the therapist can use to show you what you're doing, which is yours forever. And with the indication of urinary incontinence, it's covered. Medicare, Medicaid covered. You may, may have a hard time finding a provider that takes the Medicaid, but I've never had a problem with someone with Medicare. And again, you know, depending on the insurance product, you're going to look at um, institutions like hospitals provide this as well. So whereas private organizations may not want to take the, those products, but they're there and they're there for a good reason. And they know their, their place. They are excellent at what they do. Just imagine if you fracture your, your wrist, you go for OT and the tiny little exercises they teach you to do to give you function. We'll just think of the pelvis, that important area that does so much for us. So Moving right along to the question about medications. But I'm glad you mentioned the K, <laughs> the K word, a lot of the, which is the Kegel's exercises. So thank yeah. you for telling so, us about that. We know yeah. that. Yeah. So now you get to medication. So when you've done, when you're doing both, you have so much more success. In America, in the world today, there are two classes of medication we use. They're anti-muscarinics or anticholinergics. They affect the nerves because our nerves have those pathways. And uh, <laughs> I have an issue with talking about brands. So forgive me if I'm not going there with brands, but anticholinergics and anti-muscarinics, a type of medication, the gotta go medication, they have them on TV. The most common is oxybutynin, 
Oxybutynin is an old drug. It's been around from time and eternity uh, in, in, in our country anyway. And it can be used for children. This problem is common in children, for children and for adults. That class of medication in general, the most common being oxybutynin, has a few notable side effects. And there are three I talk about, mostly two, but three. One is dry mouth. Because of the receptors it affects, the same receptors affect salivation. So everyone has dry mouth to a different degree. Again, people are different, so it doesn't prevent you from prescribing it and trying it, but it causes dry mouth. Similarly, it causes constipation. Half of my pelvic floor people come in complaining of constipation. So now you know why I address constipation first before even trying the medication. Because if I treat constipation and then I try the medication, it's a win-win. Okay. The third, it's absolutely contraindicated in narrow angle glaucoma. The good news is that any ophthalmologist who diagnosed narrow angle glaucoma will treat it fairly quickly. So that goes to the bottom of the rung. Dry mouth and constipation are the two big things we worry about. So once I prescribe that medication, I'm already creating alternatives. The solution is not to drink more water, drink normal amounts of water, but you're going to have dry mouth. So sugar-free gum, and I'm going to say sugar-free because nobody's going to accuse me for making them fat from having chewing gum. Sugar-free gum promotes salivation. Um, there are certain expensive mouthwash like biotin that can be used or just rinsing your mouth is a good habit. The lowest possible dose is helpful. Always start with the lowest possible dose before titrating it up. And of course, the higher the dose, the higher the the the, the, the side effects. The other class of drugs, so there are many in that class that I just talked about, at least nine of them. And you, you know, they all work the same way. There's a little tweaking that you can do to minimize some of the side effects. The other class is a beta agonist that works again on a different type of nerves in the bladder. That medication is really expensive because it's newer. Many insurance companies won't pay for it until you have tried two of the other class that I talked about, the oxybutynin group. And so um, depending on the insurance, you have to be careful whether you prescribe it or not. There There are times you may have to justify it for your patient. Someone who has uh, irritable bowel with constipation predominance you're never going to treat that constipation to say, be happy with yourself that I'm going to give a medication that causes constipation. So you may have to do a peer to peer and say, um, you know, this person just can't have this drug. And I know this is expensive, but this is what's good for my patient. And so it works very well. I just have to give you that caveat because I struggle with it too. I prescribe it, they deny it, and then I have to go back and fuss about it. And hopefully someday it will get off formulary and then it will be accessible to everyone. But the beta agonist, it's called Mirabegron. There are two doses and it's pretty efficient. Now, you would need a subspecialist if you're going to try and do a combination. Some people need more. And if the individual has neurologic disorder, baseline, like spinal stenosis, Parkinson's, they need higher doses. And so you would be really trying to manage side effects and benefits. 
But with physical therapy in on board, you're going to get some help. There are other treatments for this overactive bladder, persistent urgency frequency. Now that we talk, I know I'm, <laughs> I'm preempting your next question. Right, right, right. Such right, as yes, yes. We, she, you talked about the, the pacemaker, but even before the pacemaker, there's mm-hmm. something called percutaneous tibial nerve stimulation, which is like acupuncture to the tibial nerve, which can impact the, the sacral nerves. And it works. It just requires a lot of time because the treatment that is covered by the insurance requires weekly treatments for 12 weeks, then monthly treatments for 12 months, and Medicare will cover it up to three years. If it's going to work for your patients, it's so helpful and, you know, uh, it's helpful, period. So that's one um, additional therapy. And then another more invasive minimally invasive therapy is Botox injection into the bladder to quiet those nerves. It works very well. It will quiet the nerves. It requires redo because the Botox wears off in the longest I've seen it hold is about um, six months. Okay. Does come with certain side effects like increased risk of infection. And if it works too well, that person can't urinate. So they need to learn to cap themselves, but it's a very um, reasonable option, third line option before even the pacemaker. 